You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Jerry, our first podcast, first wheelhouse post-All-Star break, episode number 30 of the wheelhouse. How was your All-Star break? It was spectacular. <laughs> uh, you know, nice break. Tammy and I took off just before the the, the Sunday game, and uh, we relocated to Napa for a handful of days, and, and a culinary adventure, a little bit of wine, some beautiful sights, and nothing but quiet. Uh, Are you referring to your cell phone in particular, I would think? Yeah, you know, a couple of phone calls. Uh, okay. Just one or two with other teams because generally the, the league likes to shut off a little bit during the All-Star break. And a couple of quick phone calls with Scott, but otherwise pretty uh, pretty quiet time away. Like, would you have to be really pretty good friends with a general manager to call him during the All-Star break? Like, could you call a general manager you don't have a great relationship with and expect a pleasant phone call during the break? Oh, I think they'll, they'll all be pleasant. You all, I, I would say if you are placing a phone call during the All-Star break, expect a 99% chance that it's going to go unanswered. And, and that it's going to require a return call. And that return call is probably going to come after they are done with ever, whatever activity or time down they're looking for. You might wait two days to get a call back. Is it hard to unplug like that, especially during the heat of the summer when things are really starting to go down for not just the Mariners, but so many other teams as well? Grossly uncomfortable for the first half of the first day. <laughs> and then it becomes, it becomes the, the norm. It becomes the regular. So when the first half ended, and of course the Mariners were in Colorado and Denver, uh, my wife and kids were in Cape Cod visiting uh, my in-laws. And so when I got home, I got home to an empty house, which like this never happens, right? Wife and two kids are not there. They were going to fly in the next morning. And I, my favorite ice cream flavor, like I think my favorite local ice cream flavor that I've ever had is Cherry Chunk from Molly Moon's. Which is only I've never a, tried. It. Oh my, Jared. I've tried Molly Moon, but never yeah, tried. The, the cherry, cherry chunk is—it's like the—it's—it's it's the epicenter of all great ice cream for me because I love cherries and chocolate is terrific, and it's the summertime, right? So it's perfect. So I've—I've I've been to Molly Moon's a number of times while Cherry Chunk is out, and I've ordered Cherry Chunk, and I've been pretty enthusiastic about it. Well, I said to myself, when when we land, when the team charter lands back in Seattle at whatever eight o'clock. On a Sunday night, I said, I'm, I'm just hightailing it right to Molly Moon's, and I'm getting the biggest cherry chunk ice cream sundae I can possibly get. So I do exactly that, right? I, I hoof it over to Molly Moon's. I wait in line by myself for like 20 minutes. Everybody else wants cherry chunk as well. I get to the front, front of the line, and the woman at the counter goes, hey, I know you. You're famous. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I... Uh, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> and she says, you're the guy who loves Cherry Chunk. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, that's definitely me. Yeah, I'll take a large. Thank you very much. Uh, so that's how my all-star break started. And uh, we got out to Lake Chelan for a couple of days and uh, swam in the third deepest lake in the United States, Jerry. I did not know that till I did some uh, hashtag prep on our all-star break. This is new information on two fronts. One, deep lakes. And two, <laughs> Cherry Chunk. I did, I did find out in this one, I would I got to give props where they're due. Uh, we had family day here at Safeco just this past Sunday. So all of our players, our coaches, surrounding staff, their families, a lot of little kids running around, which was fun. And, and 
our crack staff brought in Suge's Traveling Ice Cream Show, which was a you know, old school bicycle driven cooler with, uh, I think, six or seven different flavors of ice cream from Suge's down on the, the, the market. And it was unbelievable uh, how quickly the, the kids and the, the adults yes. started lining up for this ice cream. <laughs> and I, I did enjoy some peanut butter crunch, which was uh, oh, yeah. went over fairly well. But if I can circle back to the trip to, to Napa, I came across my favorite new form of ice cream. And I'm not usually a big ice cream guy. But uh, when eating out one night, we had a toasted baguette ice cream. What? And it, it's as bizarre as it sounds. It was the tastiest ice cream I have ever had. It was. I find that hard to believe. It, uh, now, was this gluten-free? It, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't ask. I just thought, this is awesome. Feed me more of it. So did it, it, did it, it tasted like bread? It tasted like a toasted baguette with this great savory flavor. It was a little grainy. I, I know you're looking at me right right now. You're looking at me like it's the broccoli rob moment. But this Part is, two, yeah. yeah this, and which, by the way, I've had people ridicule me on the streets of Seattle. <laughs> it's <about> working. <laughs> Colin, our outreach is immense, even bigger than I could have hoped. But I'm going toasted baguette ice cream. You won't have better. It's a, It was unbelievable. I will say this. If I went to any type of establishment that served that ice cream, I would have to try it because it sounds so ridiculous. And it was just as good, which was my thought. Process. Sure, I can't. I don't see how it's yeah. gonna be. I've got photos. It won't. It won't truly bring it to life. But you, take my word for this. Were there one. toasted breadcrumbs on top of? Yes, the... there was. And Are even, you serious? And even a, a veil thin little slice of of kind of toasted baguette that was kind of propping it up, looking like a. a Meanwhile, I'm in the corner with hot symbol. fudge sauce and whipped cream <laughs> all over my face. That's okay. All right. I next time I uh, see. Toasted baguette ice cream. I'll, I'll give it a shot, and I'll let you know about it. That's good stuff. Uh, so, Jerry, uh, a reminder, as always, as we were 30 episodes deep into the podcast, uh, feel free to subscribe wherever you find your podcast because you never know when uh, there might be an emergency podcast of some kind. We are approaching that time on the calendar. Hey, we haven't talked about the All-Star Game at all, Jerry. Uh, that was a lot of fun, in particular for Gene Segura. What was your reaction when you saw the highlights of uh, Gene hitting that bomb home run to put the American League on top? Uh, the the whole thing was awesome. First, the you know the the community around the Mariners, our fantastic staff, the PR, the marketing groups, and what they did to help Gene get there, deservedly. You know, he, he I, I said to him when he came back. I'll, I'll actually I'll wait until I reference what my thoughts were before I tell you this quick little fun story. But uh, watching Gene jump around was very to me 2018 Mariners. That's what the Mariners looked like for three and a half months prior to the All-Star game. And Gene was such a big part of that. That enthusiasm, it was pure joy. I, I can't recall ever seeing a home run hit in an All-Star game where a player reacted that way. Uh, it was, and I think it was all of, of the, the things that he went through in the first half, whether it was the, the loss of Robinson Cano to the team. It was Gene rising up as a leader and having a phenomenal first half. It was battling back from so many deficits to win games by by a close margin. It was the enthusiasm of his teammates, of, of Gene, of D, of Mitch, etc. And then it was the disappointment of not making the All-Star team as a selection and, and then being voted in by the fans, which I think, again, was a, a really energizing thing. 
it was it pumped me up. Clearly, it pumped Nelson Cruz up. <laughs> yes. His his video. Did you, I take you for the at least the audio version of his video? Oh, I told Nelly it was the highlight of the All Star game for me. It was his, you know, <laughs> and and, I, and that's so you know, like that's just that's Nelly in in normal time. He's he's always that excited for his teammates. And uh, afterward, when the team came back and we returned for the second half and had a chance to see Gene, I, I said to to Gene. You got host, and he looked at me. He goes twice, <laughs> but he's a, uh, you know, he he said it laughingly. I think he had a great time. It's a moment he'll never forget. It was great to see four Mariners running around on the field, and and that we were so well represented, and that that some of our players, you know, like Edwin, like Gene, played such big roles in the outcome of the game. Did you ask Gene why he felt compelled to? kick the tar out of that cooler or whatever that thing was in his celebration. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking in real time when that's happening. I think Scott could probably do without this part of it all, right? <laughs> Just don't, please don't break a toe. Exactly. Anything, anything We've crazy. had enough toe issues with the Mariners in 2018. He's excited. You need to, you know, he's got big change. You can do things in the all-star <laughs> game that you just don't ordinarily do. And the the cooler got in the way. Maybe it was an homage to Carlos Gomez and yes. his, his efforts in Tampa. Very nice, very nicely done. Well, it was uh, it was it was pretty awesome. And there was this story of Nelson Cruz essentially forfeiting an at bat to Gene Segura. Now Gene ended on deck; the inning came to a close. But as you kind of get back talking about Nelson Cruz, it does kind of say a lot about Nelly and their relationship, Cruz and Segura, and just kind of the Mariners in general, doesn't it? Selfless, and it's it's kind of who Nelly is, and he's always been that way. He's been to the All Star Game a half a dozen times. He's experienced it. You know, it's been a while for Gene. He's been there once before, but you know, again, this it's been such a long journey back for him in a lot of different ways. And I think Nelly understood the importance of it to Gene, and it would have been a real shame for him to get in to 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 make the team the way he did and not get in the game. Uh, and in that moment, I think the fact that Gene told him, okay, I'm going to hit a homer, and then went ahead and did it is what caused the, 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 the great enthusiastic call that Nelly made, I just screaming and yelling and laughing. And the other players were doing it too, which is what made it all the more enjoyable, is that it's, it's infectious when you feel that excited about what's happening for your teammates. Well, Jerry, we are recording this in advance of the – Game one of two against the Giants, who are in town for like 24 hours. And uh, James Paxton scheduled to start today. That is not the case. He has been scratched. What can you tell us about what's happening with James? You know, we put Pax on the, the DL just prior to the break. Uh, he came out of his last start of the first half uh, versus the Angels with a little low back inflammation tightness. That has generally resolved itself over the course of the All-Star break and entering today. He's thrown bullpens and feels mostly there, but not quite. And Based on the, the how much season is left, you know, we've got 62 games to play. James Paxton is critically important to us, and uh, nobody wants to push it, including James. So we're just going to give him that extra day. Maybe it's two. It could be five. But we're, we're not going to rush him back until we feel like he is ready to be about out on the mound. And, you know, we'll collectively determine when that time is, hopefully as early as this weekend, maybe not until next week. But we don't imagine it's going to be a long layoff. So in his place in game one will be? It's going to be Rowenis Elias and, uh, and his merry band of bullpen friends. <laughs> so, you know, probably between Rowenis and Casey Lawrence and Chase and Bradford, try to get down or get through the fifth, sixth innings. And if we're ahead, then you turn it over to the, to the, the winning game bullpen, the guys who've been doing such a great job all year. 
And if not, we'll have to piecemeal it together, and, and hopefully we don't see another appearance from Andrew Romine. <laughs> <laughs> the Mariners are coming off a series win against the White Sox at home. Offense had been a challenge for the Mariners dating back to, let's call it maybe the last week before the All-Star break thereabouts. Uh, but I would have to imagine, nice to see on Sunday, a career day for your first baseman, Ryan Haley. A career best six runs batted in, a couple of home runs. But good to see the offense break out a little bit and something to hopefully carry over to tonight. Very much. And, you know, and it was really good to see Ryan Haley get going. Uh, you know, big, big day for him. And frankly, the last time we scored runs in bulk was the last time Ryan Healy had a big day. And, you know, against against the Angels, we had gone a two-week stretch, you know, maybe closer to three weeks, uh, including the, the, the first two games of the White Sox series, where we just hadn't been scoring much. Uh, we've, we've been watching our wheels turn, and largely it's, it's everybody a collective struggle. Part of what we were able to do so magically through most of the first half was that everybody contributed, the energy level was so high, and, and never gave up in a game. And we just all of a sudden started struggling to get runners on base, much less score them. So, you know, it became a collective slump, so to speak, with maybe Denard Spann and Chris Herman being the only guys that were that were you know, not sinking in, at the same time. So for us, the break came at the right time. It gave guys the opportunity to take a breath and bounce back a little bit. You know, we've Nelly and Mitch Hanniger have done a great job of taking their walks while they've been, you know, less than themselves swinging the bat. And when you're doing that, and and then you start clipping a couple of balls to, to right field and and start hitting those line drives, that's when the hot streak comes. You can always tell when it's coming with with Nelly and to a degree with Mitch. And I think we're starting to see signs of those guys heating up. The the first three games out of the break, very encouraging. Where we saw D, D Gordon that we had gotten so used to when when all of our offense was clicking. And I feel like we will start to get back to that now that the guys get in a, a more regular routine here in the second half. It's an incredibly small sample. It's three games. But Mitch Hanniger was on base multiple times each game against the White Sox and was walking, it seemed like, every other plate appearance. Uh, do you make anything out of all the ball fours that he saw in those three games, or is this just a... It's just the way those three games went for Mitch. I think it's just the way those three games went. I could say the same for the previous week with Nelson Cruz. You know, I think Nelly was hitting 180, but he had walked 10 times in a week. Uh, similarly with Mitch, you know, he hadn't been doing a whole lot of like, it was like scorching hitting, but he was walking. And the best players in the game offensively, they managed to find their way on base while they're not, you know, scorching hot with the bat. Nobody's going to be hot for 162 games. So these guys have cooled off, but they kept taking their walks and they gave the, the lineup a chance to kind of move the or pass the baton, so to speak. And unfortunately, everybody else was cold at the same time and it wasn't happening. But what those guys have been doing tells me that they see the ball, that, that it's starting to come. We've seen both of those guys hit the ball in the screws a number of times over the course of this last weekend. And I think it'll really start to click now as we get going. And then you count Segura in the same mix. You know, he, he cooled off significantly. And between Gene and Mitch and Nelly and Kyle, when we get into the middle of that order, when those guys are clicking and D's on base, we're a very dangerous offense. And we just went through a two, three-week lull where nobody was, and, and we weren't scoring a whole lot, and we had to rely on our pitching. You've referenced an art span. Now that you've had a chance to see him in person with your own eyes for a, a really good chunk of games now, and you've noticed what he can do in the clubhouse as well, what have been your uh, early uh, reactions to Denard span as a Mariner? 
love the acquisition. He is a, he is a pro's pro. Not to get too cliche, he's as professional in a bat, professional a player. He's he's a really good person. You can he's very easy to talk to. He's an excellent teammate, and for a guy who's accomplished what he's accomplished in a long and very good big league career, you'd never know in that room that he isn't the guy with one year of service as opposed to the guy with thirteen. You know, it's. He is, he's a phenomenal teammate first and has been a really steady player for us since we picked him up. Running north of an 800 OPS in his time with the Mariners, he's, and I have every faith that whatever situational at bat arises, whether it's scoring the runner from third base, it's getting the runner over at a critical time, or it's finding ways to get on base toward the tail end of a game, Denard is among our best at that situational game. And and that comes with experience. It also comes with he tracks the ball into the strike zone for longer than maybe any hitter I've ever seen. It's, it is incredible how long he waits to trigger his swing. And therefore, swing decisions, you know, ball strike swing decisions are much easier for Denard than most. And there's, it's really a very uncomplicated swing. He's, he just triggers a very simple swing, and he's good at it. Uh, I've, I've loved having him here. I think he's done a great job. It's funny when you talk about that, if you really get nitty-gritty with it, what kind of milliseconds are we talking about for a guy to take longer to trigger his swing? I mean, it can't be that much time in reality. No, it's, it's less than a second, you know, and, and which is phenomenal. When, and a, a quick little funny story. You know, Tony Gwynn, the great Tony Gwynn, uh, was among the best pure hitters that ever lived. And when you think about how little time you have to, uh, to, to be able to identify or trigger your swing, identify a pitch, trigger your swing, it's, it's, it's happening all in, like you said, milliseconds. You've got to make about a second and a half to make your decision. And Tony Gwynn used to go through drills. I think I've mentioned this to you before. He used to go through drills with the throw him BP with baseballs that were painted uh, with a small little dot, a yellow dot, a blue dot, or a red dot. And then he would hit those balls to whatever field the dot represented. So all blue dots to left, all, all yellow dots to center. The rest of the hitters are just trying to figure out if the ball is going to be over the white part of the plate. <laughs> and, and Tony's identifying that little dot. Part of the reason why is how late he was able to trigger his swing and how deep he was able to let that ball get in the strike zone before running or triggering his swing. Denard's man has that trait. He has that ability to watch the ball so long before determining whether he's going to swing or not, which makes it less likely that he's going to swing at bad pitches. He does maintain a lower strikeout rate as a result, and he's pretty good at taking a walk because generally speaking, he doesn't chase a lot of bad pitches. Is this because of the simplicity and the quickness of the swing that allows them to do that, or at least in part allows them to do that? And I think a slower heartbeat. And, and if, you are, if you are around Denard for any period of time, like we have seen some high-anxiety players in our time here with the Mariners. We have seen some guys that are super excitable. Uh, we have also seen Denard's band, who is it's a, it's a really slow heartbeat. There's a, there is no anxiety in his game. He's, there's no stress that you can visibly see. It's nice and calm and easy. He trusts his own process. He believes in his ability to trigger his swing. We have not seen velocity affect him in a significant way. We've not seen big chases. And again, those situational at-bats have been about as good as anybody we've had. When we look to that White Sox series, the starting pitching we saw from Wade LeBlanc and Marco Gonzalez uh, was terrific once again. Jerry, I can't tell you how many times uh, we've been asked, 
How does Wade LeBlanc strike out 10 professional major league hitters? But he did it seemingly with ease the other night. He, he, he just jucks and jives. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's, he speeds you up. He slows you down. You know, Wade's 85 or 87 mile an hour fastball looks much, much harder than that. To the, you know, effective velocity. And we've talked about it a lot. If, if you are mixing your pitches as freely as Wade and you are able to, uh, let's call it, range your pitches in a 20-mile or 25-mile-an-hour zone, which to some degree he can do. He can throw that curveball in the low 70s. He can throw the, the, that cutter slider just off of his fastball in the high 70s to the mid-80s. He can throw his fastball in the mid-80s, and then that changeup in the mid-70s looks like, you know, you remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon where that's, that's Wade LeBlanc. And he does such a good job of mixing his repertoire, of disguising his pitches, of making one pitch look like another, that when you get against a younger team especially, like the White Sox, who are aggressive, they're hunting fastballs, and they're looking to hit fastballs, and you have Wade LeBlanc, whose fastball is going to be about 86 He's going out there and he's taking his fastball, his cutter, and his changeup. They all look like a fastball to the hitter. And he's able to range them and stop them and change the direction in such a way that he's that he created a mix on just slowing them down. And he didn't give them a lot of fastballs to hit, which is what they're looking for. The thing we were marveling at for Wade the other night, game one of the second half, was that, as you know, he really doesn't throw his curveball that often, right? It's, just, it's more it's, of a show pitch. It's, more, it's yeah. his most seldomly used pitch. And yet... There's a point, Jerry, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was seven batters in a row. It was first pitch curveball, first pitch curveball, time and time and time again. And we know that the White Sox are very free swinging, right? Uh, and they're also, they are big time fastball hunters. Okay, because we were curious, just kind of the, the mindset of Wade doing this, does, is there a danger zone if if you're at the plate and I'm on deck and Collins, of course, already struck out because he saw three straight curveballs and didn't have a chance at it, and now he throws you a first pitch curve, and he's already thrown two other guys a first pitch curve. I'm on deck going, is he going to really throw me a first pitch curve as well? I mean, it's it was uh, an approach that I don't think we've seen Wade take at all so far this year. And and part of the, I guess, I, I've, I've mentioned this before too, Bill James would reference that the uniqueness of a player is what makes him most valuable. Right now in, in today's game of high velocity, Wade LeBlanc is really unique. And the, the hitters are standing. Once you've got them thinking, he won't really do this to me, will he? you kind of won the game already right. because they're all you're trying to do is create shadow of doubt. And in a game of, of milliseconds where the hitter has to determine when to trigger his swing, if you can create one itty-bitty shadow of doubt, you win. And it's, it's, it's that, I, I guess, craftiness that makes Wade what he is. And, and he's not afraid to trust himself. And the old adage, baseball adage, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And, you know, he wasn't trying to fix it. He just kept going to the well with what was working. And he was, he was in a unique way, changing what he had done, which was already unique. And, and at some point, you have to recreate yourself, even within a season, to, to beat the opponent. Because if you become too predictable and you're not physically better than the other team, then, then they get you. And Wade has found ways to outthink his opponent. And that's just another example of it. Marco Gonzalez took a no-hitter into the sixth inning, Jerry, on Sunday. As a general manager, do you 
At what point do your antennas start to go up a little bit in a situation like that? Is it after three innings, after five innings? Do you have to get into the seventh? When is it for you? I mean, for me, I'm watching, and I'm watching like everybody else. You know, I, I've said it before. I'm watching like a fan. I'm, I'm rooting them on like every one of our players. And and uh, by the time you get to the fifth inning and you, you think, ah, there's been two hard-hit balls. It wasn't even that they didn't have a hit. They just didn't hit the ball hard. And, you know, our players do a great job defensively, particularly when Marco pitches because he works so fast. He never really leaves that rubber. It, there's Wade's the same way. There's a, there's, a, there's a flow to the game. And, and I think that's why you see such a crisp feel to it. But similar to, to Wade, Marco did a wonderful job of mixing his pitches. It's never giving them a, a sequence, never giving them patterns that they can track and, and using all your weapons at the same time. And, and again, a guy who's got an exceptional changeup. And when you can back the ball up against teams that are, that are young, aggressive, fastball hitters, it, now you've got them eating out of your hand, so to speak. And I think Marco showed that. It's, uh, it's just another step in the direction. Marco's been as consistent as can be since truly since about the middle of May. And uh, if even a little before that, he's, he's been remarkable. Maybe since we left Chicago, his, his first outing against the White Sox was – uh, was really good outing, and and from that time on, he's been as consistent, really, as most any pitcher in the American League. We were trying to think of another pitcher that we can recall this year or even in recent years that is a four pitch starting pitcher who throws each pitch a minimum of twenty percent of the time, like Marco Gonzalez. And I, I, I can't think of somebody. That's not to say that there's not one of those guys out there, but it just shows you how rare it is that Marco can do that. It really is, and and it's part of the appeal when we acquired Marco is the, you know, first of all the pitch command, the athleticism, and the ability to command the ball is something that has always been a real strength of Marco's, and he always had a menu of pitches. They just weren't quite refined, and and you have to remember how disrupted his development time was in the Cardinals system, first by a quick ascent to the big leagues, and then by injury that that you know both were kind of out of his control. So, you know, this was an opportunity in the last year or so. It's been an opportunity for Marco to really figure out who he is. And Mel Stottlemyre and Brian DeLunis and Jim Brower, teammates, James Paxton, have been really helpful to Marco in that way. And I don't think it's an accident. Marco spends a lot of time with and around Wade LeBlanc. And, you know, they're, you know Jerry, they're, they're Instagram buddies. They, I, I'm they, aware of this. Yeah. They're, they're, they're super duper. <laughs> super duper like Guillermo Heredia. But they, <laughs> they are, yes. <laughs> yes, they are super duper, super duper pals, as I understand. And they, they do spend a lot of time around one another. And I'm not sure that there are two pitchers who are more perceptive of what the other guys are doing. And by other guys, it could be other pitchers in the league, identifying hitter traits, reading swings. You know, you're not going to turn around in the dugout and see too many moments in time on the four days where Marco or Wade are not pitching, where they're not engaged with what's happening in the game. And they're students of it. They're tracking it. They're sharing with one another. They, they talk a lot with their catchers, with the pitching specialists and coaches, you know, with the advanced guys. Give me ideas on, on what I can do to enhance what, what I'm doing to get them out. And, and that type of focus has really been huge for both of them all season long, and I don't anticipate it'll change. Jerry, we are recording this on the 24th of July, and that means the trade deadline is just around the corner. What, what time of day, Pacific time, is the deadline on the final day of the month? Uh, Pacific time will be about midday. Yeah. So, so, it's a, so it, Keith, our next 
you've got it down for our next wheelhouse midday, the 31st. We good on that? Right in the middle. Just so if the train comes down, <laughs> yeah. we'll be ready. Because we want, Ish. Jerry, we want your phone on speakerphone whenever those calls come. And we'd, li- we'd, we'd like to break it first here. You understand. I, I, I have no problem doing that. <laughs> I, I will say this, that, that when I first started as a general manager, and even when I was an interim general manager in Arizona, uh, this dates back to summer of 2010, we, the, the trade deadline was actually midnight Eastern. So it's, uh, it, was, it was insane. The, the, you're going, it's midnight, and you've still got five live wires. It's five minutes till midnight, and everybody's trying to, to jockey for position. And finally, the league said, and, I, and I, you know, God bless them for doing it, they just this is stupid. Why don't we just set it earlier in the day? Because, you know, the, the, the reality is, and baseball is like most other sports, and you learn through negotiating with draftees in, the, in a time where, where the system was a little bit different than it is today, or even trade discussions as you go through the course of the season. Deadlines generally provide the best results for the seller. So as a rule, the seller wants to hold until the last possible minute because theoretically, they've achieved the best offer they're going to get. And what you'll wind up doing is as you get down to deadline day, teams that are holding, let's call it appealing middle relievers, you'll start to see a flurry of action on the the last couple of hours because they realize, all right, we're not getting any more than this. Let's go and save some salary. The teams with the real marquee pieces We'll move them at any time because now it's just a matter. You're going to give me what I want. Otherwise, I'm just going to wait till the end. And then somebody's going to give me what I want. And they're usually right. So, you know, the the history of the trade deadline has taught any deadline in baseball has taught us lessons about when to go and when not to go. It's part of the reason why we were so aggressive with the span colomay trade back when we made it and was it to us was an opportunity to tap into talent that we believed would have cost us a lot more at the deadline. And we were able to tap into it for, for roughly a season, uh, which was a huge benefit to us. And we don't feel like we paid any more of a premium to do it then than we would have in July. You did a really great job of kind of taking us behind the curtain when the Colome Span deal went down and the, the bullpen effect of all the guys on the whiteboard and going through one dry erase marker after another coming up with ideas. Is it basically that same type of thing going on right now as we approach the trade deadline? Yeah, and we're working off of one dry erase board, which let me tell you, it's if uh, I'm, I'm putting in on my capital expense <laughs> request for next year, whiteboards. Uh, we have, we've been working off of a whiteboard in Justin Hollander's office, who is our director of baseball operations. And, you know, Justin probably doesn't have the most sizable office space in our, in our group. Well, whose fault is that? It's uh, clearly something we need to expand. But, you know, we, we had, I would say, six or seven people packed in there this morning and on a, with a desk, two chairs, and a very small, let's call it, love seat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, w- it was cozy, and we were working on the draft board and or on the, the whiteboard and had to multiple times take snapshots of the of the whiteboard because we had to race it and start over like let's not forget this one and then come back but uh so many conversations and we we share the load you know we will myself our assistant gm jeff kingston our vp of scouting tom allison justin hollander our dbo will will reach out to other teams we will receive a ton of calls 
here in the last week, you find out that most of the interaction starts to be more general manager to general manager as, as we've kind of sorted through who we're interested in, who might be available, which are the, the most reasonable targets for us. In some cases, we've already gone through exchanges of names we would be willing to move in return for, for a target. In others, there's still a whole lot of, uh, let's call it, you know, shucking and jiving. We're not quite there yet. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's been an interesting market this year, I think. There are, there are very clear sellers and there are very clear buyers. And then there is a large group of teams in the middle that are so close in the, in the world of competitive baseball, particularly in National League teams, that you've got a large group of teams that three weeks ago were preparing to sell. And now today, are probably more neutral to getting more aggressive in the buyer's market. So I, I don't really think it's going to be a, a busy midweek, but I think as we get closer to this weekend, and, and I've said it before, the, the biggest thing you'll see moved is, is a lot of bullpen arms. But there'll, there'll be some other you know, more marquee names that, are, that certainly change, change houses. It seemed like not even all of that long ago, we would always hear come the trade deadline, this team, this team, and that team are all at this ballpark to watch this pitcher. Well, now, with the way the video scouting goes, I mean, is that still a thing anymore? Not really. You know, we will sit now when we are targeting, and I'll, and I'll go back to the acquisition of Marco Gonzalez about this time last year. You know, we, we went out and actively watched. We had, we had our scouts there to watch the final four or five starts he made for the Cardinals AAA team before we acquired Marco. And, you know, we can work off a video on a AAA pitcher for sure, but it's not quite as, as clean as, as we would like it to be, depending on where it comes from. You know, there are certain teams that have fees that, that provide video or where we can access it in a different way, but always won't get a live look. Some of the things you can see live that you just can't see uh, on video, the life on the ball, uh, the finish on an otherwise straight fastball, let's say. You know, you'll get you will get pitchers who throw particularly straight, but there's a burst to the ball through the zone that you don't quite see on video, and you know that is important. You want to get a feel by sending your scouts to the ballparks, particularly at the minor league levels. You get a feel for what the the general sense is for this player's makeup, for his competitiveness. You can watch for five, six, nine innings how that pitcher interacts in the dugout with his teammates, with the coaches. You can watch the way he interacts with a catcher and whether he's receptive to discussion or is it just a guy that grabs a towel and goes and sits at the end of the bench by himself. You know, we will, and we did last summer, station somebody with the Memphis Redbirds for a period of time to watch batting practice the day before. You know, National League team, watch the athlete. He's going to swing the bat. We're, we're going to get a feel for what they do. And then more importantly, Who's he standing with when he's shagging in the outfield? What's he do on his work day down in the bullpen? And, and what is the interaction like with the coaches? Because you can get up close and personal on that as a scout and as a fan. Uh, you know, you can sit there, literally sit there with your iPad seven feet away from a AAA bullpen and, and watch the, the pitcher throw and generally eavesdrop on what they're talking about. And, or at least get an idea of the way this, this player interacts. And makeup and, and the way you fit in a clubhouse or how coachable you are are all important elements to putting together trades, especially when you're trading you know, other players that you like. 
So we'll do the same things. It's a little bit more complicated that in, in, in the big leagues uh, for any reason from security to kind of to a little bit more protected environment. But, you know, we do send scouts out live to track players, but usually it's well in advance of when we will pull a trigger on a deal. We're not waiting for that one magic pitch that says, this is the guy. <laughs> Once we wrap things up here today on the podcast, Jerry, you are off to uh, ownership meetings uh, without getting too deep into the weeds. So what are those like? Uh, you know, we do them on a fairly regular basis here with the Mariners. Um, since I've been with the club, we do them about monthly. We have, you know, obviously our chairman, John Stanton, uh, Chris Larson, and a host of, of owners that, that have been here since 1992. The, the group has been virtually unchanged from the time that this group, you know, took over with Nintendo uh, and, and purchased the club back in the early 90s. And on a monthly basis, the group will get together and we'll just go through a, an organizational overview that uh, during the season, especially and just after the season, tends to focus on what we're doing in baseball operations. The, the roster today, today will be up close and personal. What are we doing through the trade deadline? Who are the targets that we've isolated on? What do we believe we'll have to give up to get them? And then the ensuing questions, you know, is this the right thing? Is this the wrong thing? Uh, I, I really enjoy the interaction. We have not only a group of good people who own our team, but they're fans. They, they come, they're season ticket holders. They pay for their own, uh, which I find remarkable. They pay for their own season tickets, <laughs> uh, just like everybody else does. And, uh, and they, they come to the ballpark wearing their Mariners gear, and they ask questions like a fan would, but they are, they are educated fans because they've been doing this for so long at such a high level. Uh, and had access to, to these kinds of conversations. Sometimes the conversations are fun, and we were talking about the camaraderie or, or you know, the new games that, that were the reindeer games in the clubhouse to keep everybody lively in the heat of the summer. Or we're talking about more critical matters, which are budgeting and, and payroll and or player acquisition, which are always, you're never gonna have a consensus. Any trade you make, you're never gonna have a consensus. But you have to find a common ground that allows the, the, the organization to move forward in a productive way. And these owners' meetings are a monthly standard to, to make our owners aware of what we're doing. Colin and I have talked about this, and we would appreciate it if today, at least once, if not twice, in the ownership meeting, you would start, if you'd preface the statement by saying, as I referenced earlier today, on the wheelhouse. <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. And then whatever you would like. Even if it's not true, Jerry. Just if you could just pl I mean, we feel like if we start from the top, Colin, if we get ownership involved, right? This seems like it. This seems very logical. Then this baby really takes off. Then it takes really off. takes off. From what I've heard, Kevin has brought them up in the owners' meetings before, which makes me feel antsy. It's like, oh, great. The owners are listening. But then also, on the other hand, it's like, who hope it sounds okay. They, oh, Everything no, the owners good. are listening. <laughs> <laughs> now, Hello, Colin. owners. If you're <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we think you're great. Is that what Kevin is telling you, that he brings us up in the meetings? Uh, I will say he says that you're the star of the show, so yeah. I will cede that point to you. No, it is true. He, actually, Kevin, from the time this was born, Kevin Martinez, uh, and, and has given credit where it was due to the mastermind. O'Keefe, for sure. Yes. I mean, he struck out on three curveballs, but he's terrific. That's okay. Yeah, He never throws curveballs. <laughs> I will say, looking at that Brooks chart, it was amazing. All of it, not to go way back to that, but it was so funny. Looking at Brooks baseball, you see all these different numbers. And then when he faces the White Sox, all of the pitch uses numbers convert. Curve go, fastball goes down, curveball comes up, and every, it's all 
exactly even. But so this is why we don't give a keep a microphone full time. He goes Nerd City on Brooks Baseball on us. Nerd City. I, I actually spent some time in Nerd City. This was, I, I do weekly. You know, <laughs> uh, somebody uh, said to me the other day. I did a I did a pregame. Uh, chat with the, the folks from Baseball Prospectus. Baseball Prospectus and, and guests that were here on behalf of Baseball Prospectus. And uh, and after it was over, one of our writers uh, asked me, uh, I heard you got to nerd out with Baseball Prospectus today. I said, just so you know, TJ, I nerd out every day. <laughs> I just had somebody there willing to listen to me today. But in, in all seriousness, Kevin Martinez has on multiple uh, occasions from the time this, this was born as an as an idea as a concept to updates on on generally how this project has gone has has brought it up and and multiple of our owners do listen and and get a kick out of the the general transparency and i think you need to parade o'keefe in there with a big spreadsheet all all listener uh information data download information and just have him be like this straight out of Moneyball, right like he's the guy who comes in and breaks it all jonah hill he's can i dress him any way i want to (laughs) of course you can yeah Yeah, absolutely now that would be something fun monthly if if we yes yes it's kind of like the rookie hazing yes the wheelhouse the wheelhouse update all the special backpack and everything (laughs) it would have to be pink clearly exactly Well, as long as long as you know, as long as it's getting some good pub with the ownership, I think that's all that we need. I think I think our our jobs are safe then. Hey, uh, as we transition a little bit into the minor league side of things for a moment, Jerry, congrats to the Aqua Sox, first half winners, guaranteed a playoff spot. They are, and then the Aqua Sox. It's been a successful franchise or affiliate for us overall. Uh, but again, going to the postseason, just won the or clinched the the first half on Sunday. Uh, driven by a couple of recent draftees. You know, Josh Stowers, who was our second-round pick, has has really been terrific for the Aqua Sox. And our fourth-round pick, Michael Plassmeyer from uh, Missouri, is is really been dealing from that point he got there. And we're trying to limit his innings, so we're not stretching him out start-wise. But at, at, last, at last look, he had an absurd strikeout rate that I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it at any level. It was I, – I think he had like 12 – 12 innings and like 27 strikes. Oh my gosh. It, was, it was something crazy. Uh, and you know, he's been terrific. And, and the, the guys just generally pull together and play hard like they do throughout our system. But this gives us two teams on the postseason dance, dance floor, along with Arkansas and our, our DSL team. Uh, the DSL Mariners are, are creating space between they and the next best team. So minimally we see three postseasons uh, among our, our group and hopefully more. Are you ready for a much more sane and less ridiculous stump JD this week? Oh, please, so just something. Give me a layup. Throw me a softball. I feel like this is. I feel like this is in that category, and this came up recently in conversation. Uh, Toasted baguette. <laughs> no, I got that one wrong. Uh, Jerry, can you tell me the five teams that are not represented in Cooperstown? Five teams not represented in Cooperstown. I would in. By face on a plaque. Face on a plaque in the plaque gallery. Does that include this year's class? So this year's class counts. We will in, we will include this year's class. So because I know the Angels are not represented. Correct. Uh, but but Vlad Guerrero could arguably could, be that right. guy. And we don't we don't know, do we? Uh, I I think we know. I think he is going in with an Angels okay. cap, but I can't say for certain. Okay. Uh, but that that would be one uh, that I know is not represented. All right, four left. Uh, the Marlins, correct, are not represented. The Rockies are not represented. The 
I want I'm teetering here. Are the Montreal Expos? The Montreal Expos Expos are represented, but the team they became after the they Washington won. Nationals. Correct. There we go. And lastly, I'm going to go with again a, a team that I think changes this year is the Pods. The no Tony Gwynn. Dang it! Generational hitter. Yeah. Uh, now come on. Now this is your best friend in the baseball world. My best friend in the baseball world? Well, I don't know. You got a lot of friends. Uh, your best friend in the trading baseball world? The the Tampa Rays. They have the Tampa Rays have Wade Boggs. They went in as a Red Sox. Are you certain of this? I'm. Yeah. I'm, the, was, oh it, yeah. You know it, what? Because he agreed he was going in as a Ray, and it got it the, got it got, got eighty six. That's right. Yeah. It, it it became like a thing that now created another thing that now Cooperstown decides so that you don't have to put in your contract. Yeah, I'll sign with you, and I'll go in as your with your ball clap for a little bit of depth, for a little bit of cash. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Boggs. Yeah, final two years for Wade in a raised ball cap with the idea that he would go into Cooperstown as a Ray, which is the most ridiculous yeah. thing ever. Yeah, I'm calling absurdity. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, come on. But uh, I, for, I forgot that that turned into uh, no, no, no. We're right. pulling rank here. He's, that's not happening because that would be criminal. Yeah. I agree. Uh, yes, those are your five teams. Uh, Gary Carter and Andre Dawson went in as uh, Expos, by the way. So. Uh, the Nationals, of course, a baby franchise in the grand scheme of things. See, and, and I knew in my mind's eye, I knew Gary Carter went in as a, an expo. But Andre Dawson, I thought, was the first of the no-logo guys. Oh. He opted, and, and I, this could be way off. I think he and Greg Maddox ultimately went that route where they went in with a with no logo on their hat because they they had a tough time picking that kind of – that, that – the difference between the Cubs and the Expos or the difference between the Cubs and the Braves. So it looks like a generic beer league ball cap or yeah. something? I, but you, you'd have to check on the Andre I Dawson. I know that Greg Maddox did that. Okay. I did not know that even one person did that. I'm Look, Stump, not, first of all, time out. Congrats on winning Stump JD for the first time in like two months. <laughs> you feel good? You feel somewhat, good? somewhat. Yeah. I think you won. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there's, you gave me, you gave me a bit more of a softball. Well, I, and I like the educational th- the value of it. Going back through the Wade Boggs scenario. Yeah, it all worked out just fine. I thought those. I, I as we get closer to Hall of Fame weekend, I think there will be some very much more a Hall of Fame themed Stump JDs. I would love to talk through. Colin, are you, you look like you're very. Eager to say something? I was just saying in checking, Greg Maddox does not have a logo. Andre Dawson does have the Expos logo. There you go. And Greg Maddox is yeah facing sideways on his plaque. It's like they tried I to hide no it a little bit. I have no idea about this. Yeah. That's great trivia. I'm glad to know. So are we pretty confident Maddox is the only guy without a logo on his cap then? Yeah. I thought the other one who had suggested it initially was was Andre Dawson because there was he did have a, a great career with the Expos. He also had a great run with the Cubs. And really hadn't kind of picked his moment. And I think he was one of those guys, like Wade Boggs, there was a threat that he would go in as a Marlin. Which, come on. Come on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jerry, we have, I told O'Keefe before we uh, started recording, these two listener questions in tandem are my two favorite listener questions, I think, collectively we've gotten for a show, 30 shows deep. Uh, our first one, Jansen, I love this. Jansen wants to know what our favorite cheap eat is in and around seattle wow now how would you define i will i will define it by telling you what mine is okay okay tan brothers pho you can buy now there are multiple locations 
I would say once a month in the wintertime to fight away all the rain and drizzle, Gary Hill and I meet at the Tan Brothers in Capitol Hill. And you know like when you're a new parent and you buy the baby bathtub, right, just for, for bathing your newborn? You can get a baby bathtub of pho for $7. <laughs> That's cheap. It is colossal. Uh, and all you do is you walk in and you say, large chicken. And within five minutes, the biggest steaming pot of the most delicious chicken pho. And I'm sure this is going to be like people are going to be emailing O'Keefe all the time at you know at what at the wheel the wheelhouse at Mariners.com that Goldsmith's pho recommendation is way off base. There's some other places better, but I'm telling you, for seven bucks, really good pho, and it's colossal. Tan Brothers. T H A N. I am. Uh... Tammy and I have been working our way through some some local pho joints. Okay, uh, nice. And it is I I do enjoy the big bubble it is, pot. It's fantastic. Baby bath water, whatever yes. you reference well, it as. Well, yeah, I mean you, you have the general idea there. Yes. Uh, no, I'm a pho fan. Uh, I will tap that in. There is a there's a deli, a sandwich shop down here uh, by the name of Salumi that I would qualify in that same general time zone uh, or dollar zone. Uh, where the salami, the, the mole salami sandwich. This is the, now, salumi is only open certain days of the week. To me, the single best sandwich in Seattle. Whoa! Uh, there's and I take. Yeah, there you go. Uh, if you want it now, you've got to you got to look at the website to find out what the hours of operation are that day. You have to understand that there are three seats maybe for uh, for dining in. And you better get there pretty early because the line starts to wrap around the building if you wait too long. It's, it's about a mile and a half walk from Safeco. Uh, and it's in the years where I would travel into Seattle. We would actually get up in the morning uh, on a normal 7 o'clock game day. I would get up in the morning with, with two or three members of our front office. And we would trek down to Salumi and just get online at 10 a.m. And, and get the sandwiches really? so that we had them. Uh, and describe the sandwich that you order, please. Uh, the sandwich that I ordered, there's mold. I'll order all of them, but they're all <laughs> cured meats. The, the mole salami, it's like a dark cured salami with it with this like mole spread over the top of it. That is, it really is to die for. And, it, and you know, the bread, the bread makes a sandwich. I totally it, agree. Yeah, this, it's a it's a kind of harder crusted ciabatta with this this mole salami. Sounds like a great ice cream and flavor. And it is crazy, crazy good. Uh, not always available, so you have to know, you know, they, they t- just about any type of cured Italian meat, whether it's any type of salami, prosciutto, it, they've, they've got it all. Uh, it is it is part of the the allure of walking from the hotels you know in downtown seattle to safeco field as you always had a chance you could divert and stop by salumi colin you seemed like me. you were nodding your head in agreement with jerry here i've been there once i believe but yeah what's a good spot i think i've been there once had a maybe like a meatball sub but you can also I've, do the meatballs they do have the meatballs. always crowded i think there's some like tangential relationship to a famous chef but i can't remember what exactly it is that is right yeah for one-time patron, Colin's pretty dialed in on it. All right, so Salumi and uh, Tam Brothers in the books. Uh, Robert wants to know, this is great. Uh, if you are starting a team, Jerry, from scratch, expansion ball club. I would go with the thing. Mole Salami from <laughs> Would you rather build around, Jerry, a 50 home run, 130 ribby hitter? Yes. Or a sub-3 ERA, 20-plus win shutdown starter? Of course. <laughs> 
You'd like both. Yeah. Uh, I would take the hitter if I were starting. And, and this is assuming that both are roughly the same age, both right. are controlled for, for the same period of time. Because these are all the questions we'll ask each other when we are throwing around different types of acquisition is how old are they? What do we project the, the future to look like? We don't necessarily want to gamble or pay for the past as much as we want to determine or forecast the future. Um, and we understand a bandwidth of time where players are generally operating at their best. So if you are able to tap into the, the hitter more than the pitcher, in my mind, the, it's simply because of the risk of injury. The, the, the hitters historically have a much better chance of, of maintaining their level of productivity and suffering fewer long-term injuries than the pitchers do. And, and as great as the pitchers are, and we've seen the rise and fall of some dominant pitchers over the years, their shelf life is just lesser in most cases than the dynamic hitters of that same era. And you know, it's, there are exceptions to the rule, but by and large, if I had to bet, I would bet on the hitter. Well, and I suppose it's all because of injury. When you look at the rise and the fall of the pitchers, it is typically not a gradual descent. Oh, no. It's like it a, is a Houdini cliff. disappearing act, yeah. Whereas the hitter might regress a little more peacefully and still give you good production. That's right. And especially in a league like ours where you're able to use a designated hitter and you don't necessarily, when a, when a hitter gets into you know, that kind of mid-30s, you can use DH days to either offset uh, the time he spends on his feet defensively or just give him an opportunity to hit and hit alone. So uh, the, especially in the American League, the, the bat is the, the more, I, I guess, the safer bat. And, and as a result, if all things are equal. Now, if we're going hindsight is twenty twenty. if you go back and we're allowed to, to wait until a pitcher's career ends and say, oh, I get to go back to the beginning now and start, different story. But if you're betting in the middle of the primes when these guys are 26, 28 years old, I'll take him and I'm going to bet my franchise on it, I'll take the bat every time. I think maybe a different answer than a lot of people might thought of, might have thought you would say. Well, to wrap things up, we've got two games against the Giants that starts tonight, and then of course day baseball tomorrow. Big savings or big games, I should say, coming up, including some big savings. Uh, Astros three against Houston Monday, July thirtieth. The opener being a Mariners value game presented by BECU. Bleacher review level seats fifteen bucks, man and club level for thirty. Right after that, the Blue Jays come to town. Of course, we'd love to uh, pack the ballpark when the Jays are here at Safeco Field. Jerry, I know you got some ownership meetings to get out to. Thanks as always, man. Episode 30 was a lot of fun. As always.